this morning we're going to be concluding uh, this, this short series through the book of Habakkuk, part of a larger series through the Minor Prophets. Um, again, just a refresher and a reminder of what we've seen of Habakkuk, again, seeing those injustices all around him, uh, of him seeing violence around him, and then crying out to God uh, because of all that he's seeing among his own people. And God does something that Habakkuk can hardly even believe, uh, that God is bringing a nation more wicked than Judah, more, more wicked than themselves to come and to judge them, to to discipline them, namely uh, the Babylonians, people from Chaldea. And we saw last week from chapter 2 uh, that God is not uh, forgetful, is not blind, is not absent. He knows the wickedness of these, of these people and has uh, reserved for them a, a great judgment. Woe unto them, we saw those, those five different woe judgments uh, even upon them. Uh, you know, that gives us a a reminder that God does see a, a comfort of that ultimate victory, but also uh, it is a word of, of warning to us as well. Well, that's what we're going to be picking up uh, this morning uh, as Habakkuk is then going to have the opportunity to, to respond. How will he respond to this news, to what God is doing among the nations, uh, even concerning his enemies? Uh, so would you please stand for the reading of God's word from Habakkuk chapter 3. We'll read through the entire chapter as we uh, hear uh, this prayer of Habakkuk, and that might be the prayer of our hearts as well. It was a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. God came from Timon. And the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand and there he veiled his power. Before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. And the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea? When you rode on your, cha- on your horses, on your chariot of salvation, you stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging water swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors. You came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses and surging of mighty waters. I hear, and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. 
rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, the produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Let's pray. Father, you call us to not live by sight, but by faith. Lord, a faith which, apart from you, God, is is not something natural. But Lord, you promise us, God, your Holy Spirit, who, who works that faith in our hearts. And God, as we pray for it, that it would build up in us more and more, even on account of being confronted by you today. Lord, I pray that we would know your presence, know you at work, as we meet you this morning through your word. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, in the spirit of the upcoming March Madness in just a little while, feels right to have a story of an underdog. One of the best things about March Madness that comes up is when those, you know, 14 seeds, 15, or even recently 16 seed beats a number one seed. It's, there's something exciting about that when those underdogs, seem that you don't expect to win when they come through and win. Uh, perhaps the most amazing underdog story in all of sports, one that perhaps we're, we're very familiar with, is when the Soviets had lost to the Americans in the 1980 Olympic Games. And the Soviets, it really is amazing the more that we think about it. And we know the story, but they had won the previous four gold medals. And for 16 years, they dominated the international hockey scene. They didn't even lose a single game since 1968, from before that 1980 Olympics. So for the last three Olympics, they didn't just win the gold, but they weren't losing at all. And then in an exhibition game, before the actual Olympics had begun, the Soviets played in a game versus the Americans, which the Soviets won by a nice score of 10 to 3. Now, 10 goals in hockey is like you come up like 70 in football, if not even more. It's incredible and rarely happens. It was their sport, the Soviets, and their gold medal to lose. This is all on top of, when we think of this, this underdog story, it's all on top of the, the thick political rivalry between the two nations. They were competing for every you know, industrial uh, advancement possible, trying to usurp one another's place as the premier power in the world. And then it was in this context that the Americans did the impossible, the miraculous, if you will, the miracle on ice, beating the Soviets 4-3, to three, a victory that no one expected against seemingly insurmountable odds. Well, Jim Craig was the goalie of the American team, and he was 
They're really considered to be the, the, the backbone of their team, playing I mean, out of his mind. He was playing so well during that, that stretch run in the Olympics. And in that game against the Soviets, he had 39 saves. And he, in many ways, he represented the grit, the, the tenacity of the underdog story. Well, since the Olympics, after a very short professional career, again, remember these Americans, they were not professional hockey players. They were either just out of college or they played in a lesser league than the NHL. Well, after the Olympic Games, after a short professional career, he actually went on to become a highly successful public speaker, going to events, corporate gatherings. Actually, and you yourself can hire him for between the range of twenty-five dollars to $40,000 per speech. Uh, he's made quite a, a living off of this. Going to these events, again, corporate gatherings, and he speaks concerning, you know, beating the odds, not giving up. Perhaps uh, not surprisingly, he has spoken to various sports teams about uh, teams that are about to go out and to play in the Super Bowl, teams that are about to even go out and, you know, for, for a Game 7 of the World Series, they'll bring in Jim Craig to speak to the players to tell them that no matter the, the Vegas betting line, that they have a shot. Why? What makes Jim Craig such an appropriate person to hear from in these moments? Now, we want to hear stories of success, stories of those who were you know, outsized, outgunned, outmanned, yet still won. We need to hear that it can be done. It has happened before, and it can indeed happen again. It's this type of thinking which Habakkuk even employs to instill not only confidence in his own heart, but in the heart of all of God's people. God has not forgotten them, and in fact, the Vegas odds are looking much worse in Habakkuk's situation than what the Americans face. But we know that God is faithful to his promises because he has shown himself faithful over and over again in times past. And we'll notice that because the Holy Lord has shown power over his enemies and to respond in faith, to respond in faith. And the first way that this faith is, is made known here in this text is to, to have a sense plea for mercy. As Habakkuk does, and we likewise are called to plea for mercy. Look there at verse 1 again. It says that this is a, a prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigianoth. And then actually, skip, skip down all the way to the, to the very end of the chapter. You notice that last phrase, where it says there, you know, to the choir master with stringed instruments. There's actually something about this, this plea, that this is one that is supposed to be together. It's a plea together among God's people. You know, we get quite this, this transition. I'm going to explain what some of this is here in just a moment. Uh, we get quite a transition from the end of chapter 2 to chapter 3 here. Now, we ended last chapter with the Lord in his holy temple, summoning all the earth to be silent before him. Then we go right into a time of corporate prayer and song. In two places, and point us to how this was used in a group worship setting. That's what this is. This, this prayer is something that's meant for the people of God. The, the word shigianoth uh, is 
a strange word. Um, and the only other place that it's used actually is in Psalm 7. And it's used as a sort of like a musical directive. Most commentators believe it refers to either a style of music or some action accompanying the music to elicit celebration. I didn't ask Pete this week if we could do a shiggy and all uh, before uh, the sermon this morning. He would look at me with quite the look. Uh, this accompanies the end of the message as well, uh, uh, the end of the passage, the words of direction to the choir master. And so not only that, but if you maybe notice, I didn't read them, and it's oftentimes not read necessarily, but in verses 3 and verse 9 and verse 13, there's that word at the end of each of those verses, Selah, a word that there's a lot of conversation as far as what the word actually means it likely means to pause but it really is just speculation but it is some directive for the people of god in worship together that's why i see that word over and over again in the psalms it has something to do with how is it to be read or sung among god's people so that you would do so in the same kind of a cadence or, or uh, wherever the, the verses were in the song by presenting his prayer in a form that is ready for the worshiping community. He has, Habakkuk, by, by the Holy Spirit, prepared a way for the generations following him to enter into the same life of faith, despite their own overwhelming calamities. This is the poem of Habakkuk. It is the words of all faithful Israel who endured the Babylonian siege and captivity. These are the words of Christ as a man, as he suffered without cause and earthly reason. These are the words of the church whose witness for the Lord meant rejection, imprisonment, or death from the hand of men. These are the words of the Christian mother who is taken advantage of by her family, though she faithfully loves them. These are the words of the believing student who faces ridicule for his obedience to Christ. These are the words of the faithful grandfather who prays for his grandsons and granddaughters, yet whose heart, yet whose heart is broken at their unbelief. These are words for God's people to believe. And it is mercy that Habakkuk begins to pray for, even pleads for it. There in verse 2, O Lord, I have heard the report of you and your work. O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. He has heard the Lord. He heard the Lord speak of how he will deal with the injustice and the violence in Jerusalem by bringing a nation that is more wicked than they to discipline them. Habakkuk responds to that appropriately in fear. Habakkuk believes that God is going to do what he says he is going to do. That you're going to bring Babylon? That's terrifying. He would not have feared otherwise. He knows the power of God. He knows God's holiness demands holiness. He knows God is just to deal as harshly as he desires with Judah. As God's wrath and vengeance is being displayed through Babylon and even eventually on Babylon, God, do not forget your mercy. 
You are a merciful God, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. Habakkuk's faith is rooted in the character of God. In fact, his plea to, in a sense, in the, in the midst of years, revive it. It could also be understood to be said, you know, make him live in the midst of years. Habakkuk is pleading for life in the midst of judgment. He knows now from chapter 2 and verse 4 that the righteous shall live by faith. By faith, he is pleading the promises of God. God, you said there is undeserved life found by trusting in you. I pray, give life. If there is one thing we can be sure of in the midst of discipline, in the midst of wrath, in the midst of confusion, it's that God keeps his promises. Know them. Read them, love them, pray them, trust them, plead with God concerning them. He will not leave us nor forsake us. He will complete the work that he has begun in us through Christ Jesus. He will work all things together for good for those who love him or are called according to his purpose. He will one day wipe away every tear from our eyes and on and on and on the promises of God. And he is not slow in keeping his promises, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward us. God's power over his enemies shows us the need to to plead with him for mercy, for his promises. But also his power over his enemies show us that we are to ponder the work of the Lord, to consider his works. Our God is a God who has worked in in times past. Throughout this, this section uh, here, you know, verses 3 through, uh, through 15 and even 16. Those entire section of, of verses, there are allusions after allusions made to God's work throughout the Old Testament. Each reminding the people of God that the Lord they serve has not abandoned them. Over and over again, Habakkuk has been told to wait on the Lord, to keep silent as he has stood upon the watch post. Here he is told, God will come. Because he has come in times past. Wait, but he is coming. No, God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. These two places were the the furthest west, west and east that Israel went on their wilderness wanderings. God was present with his people in the wilderness, there in the desert. God was faithful to them, providing manna and water. He led them as a pillar of fire and as a cloud. He defeated their enemies time after time. It says there in verse 4, His his splendor covered the heavens, and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light. Rays flashed from his hand, and there he veiled his power. God was not only present with his people, but he has manifested his glory before them. The lightning and thunder which roared from Mount Sinai, any person or animal save Moses which touched the mountain when God was upon it would be killed because of the holiness and the righteousness of God. 
when Moses ascended the mountain, the glory of God would shine forth so brightly that Moses would himself, even reflecting that brightness, he would shine, having to be veiled in order to hide the passing glorious light. God is full of glory and righteousness. As Habakkuk confessed in chapter 1, you are of purer eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. You cannot stand idle at wickedness. His glory will not allow it. And on it goes. In fact, from God's hand has has gone forth uh, pestilence and plague followed at his heels. He has brought plagues to his enemies. He has uh, delivered Israel upon the wings of the plagues from Egypt. He saw the tents of Kushan in affliction, the curtains of the land of Midian trembling. These are likely references to the to the uh, to places from the Book of Judges, which are incredibly relatable to God's people at this time. Actually, look at, at Judges chapter three, as you'll see how appropriate this is. Judges three, verse seven. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. That sounds familiar to Habakkuk, does it not? They forgot the Lord their God and served the Baals and the Asheroths. Therefore the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he sold them into the hand of Kishon Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia. And the people of Israel served Kishon Rishathayim eight years. But when the people of Israel cried out to the Lord, the Lord raised up a deliverer for the people of Israel who saved them. Othniel, the son of Canaz, Caleb's younger brother. The spirit of the Lord was upon him, and he judged Israel. He went out to war, and the Lord gave Kishon Rishathayim, king of Mesopotamia, into his hand. And his hand prevailed over him. And so the land had rest forty years. Then Othniel, the son of Canaz, died. There's that same cycle, the cycle that actually is is everywhere throughout the book of Judges. And Midian is doing the same thing with with Midian, uh, the people whom Gideon uh, was was raised up to to remove from the land, uh, to redeem the people of Israel from. The cycle of the, the wickedness of God's people, God bringing judgment, discipline upon them from an outside nation. Them crying out to God, God save us. And God raising up a deliverer to deliver them from their bondage. That is the cycle. That is what Habakkuk is going through here as well. It's a pattern. And ultimately we find this with, with the people here of, of Judah. That they would be taken away from Babylon. And they were in need of a deliverer. This is the pattern even of each and every one of our own lives. The pattern of rebellion towards God. God oftentimes brings us quite low. We would see our desperate need to be redeemed by somebody that's not ourselves. We are too weak to see. We are unable to pull ourselves up from the bootstraps of enslavement to sin. We need a redeemer. We need one who will fight for us. That's precisely what Jesus Christ has come to do. 
He redeems his people, bringing them out of bondage, not to just simply some some nation, but to sin from death. Jesus Christ is that deliverer. There are are other references throughout this this section concerning the wilderness, uh, the taking of the promised land. Uh, But notice the ultimate purpose of the Lord in all this. Verse 13. Says, you went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. There are many reasons why God does what he does. Some are plain as day for us and others are hidden. One of the reasons that God has made known that that he works on behalf of his people, one of the ways that it's spelled out is for the salvation of his people. He leads us through the wilderness for our salvation. He displays his glory to us. For our salvation. He disciplines his children. For our salvation. He destroys his enemies. For our salvation. Above all else. It says for our sake he made him. To be sin. Who knew no sin. So that in him. We might become the righteousness. Of God. He sent his son from his eternal throne in heaven unto the earth to take on flesh and dwell in a world of sin among people who are corrupted with sin. To be the recipient of man's sin, being lied to, mocked, deceived, beaten, scourged, nailed to a cross to die. Then my sin... Your sin was placed upon him where God did not extend mercy to him, but pursued wrath. The fullness of his anger was poured out upon his own son so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The Lord has worked over and over And over again for not only the good of his people, but for their salvation. Not only to trust in Christ on that day of belief, but for their continued salvation until faith shall be sight. Until we are all fashioned into the image of Jesus Christ in glory. He is continuing to work for our salvation. Habakkuk pondered the faithfulness of the Lord throughout the history of his people, and he calls us to do the same. This is where faith is built. It is built in the assurance of God's work in times past. Are you doubting the Lord's faithfulness? Consider how faithful he was to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Are you doubting the Lord's provision? Consider how the Lord provided for Israel in the wilderness. Are you doubting the Lord's timing and slowness? Consider how the Lord brought Joseph to power after 
years of false accusations, of slavery, of imprisonment? Are you doubting the goodness of God? You see the the headlines in, in the Ukraine. You see wicked flourishing. You see loved ones rejecting God's grace. You see the the humble and contrite being taken advantage of. God, are you good? He sent his son, beloved. He sent his son for you. He loves you. Martin Lloyd-Jones, the great Welsh Reformed pastor, once famously said, this is from Wales, so if we can't get this, the only way out of the bog is to seek solid places. The only way out of the bog is to seek solid places. The Lord calls us to ponder the solid places where our faith can have sure footing. He not only has us turn you know, to, to the history of the people of God, to, to turn to, to Scripture, but, but even to our own lives. How when he called Israel upon crossing the Jordan River to set up memorial stones so that they and their children could remember what the Lord had done there by parting the river and allowing God's people to enter into the promised land. The Lord calls us to ponder what he is doing in our own lives, to reflect on his provision, to consider his goodness, not simply as a journal entry to have, but as an anchor for our faith. I have had doubts in my own life uh, concerning God's leading and and direction. God has led us in directions as a family and as an individual that seem bizarre at times where doubt can so easily be cast and was. Yet God has shown himself faithful over and over again. I know Chrissy and I often refer back to our time in Utah, right? God, why did you have us out there in Utah for those what seemed like not long enough years to, to make the kind of difference that we that we wanted to, that we had envisioned? But then to see our time bookended by the 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 crime, the trial, the sentencing and parole of an abuser over one of God's precious sheep in the church. And no, God had us there to walk with this precious sheep through these incredibly difficult times with others. We know God leads and directs because he has done it over and over and over again in times past. Ponder the work of the Lord. But because the Holy Lord has shown power over his enemies... Let us find peace in the Lord. First, in in times of waiting, look at verse 16. It says, I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk is afraid. Don't tell me that the believer has to act in some kind of stone-faced, stoic way in the presence of difficulties. Not everyone can be Ivan Drago 
with no emotion, just eyes that peer into your soul. In fact, Habakkuk's fear shows us that he believes God. He believes God when he says that enemies are coming. He believes God when he says that it's going to be difficult, when there is going to be death. See, when Christ himself was on the cusp of tribulation, knowing full well the promises of God on the other side, he knew he wasn't going to stay in that grave, yet he sweat drops of blood in the garden. However, he didn't flee. He didn't spurn the Lord. He didn't respond in anger, but in grief and in longing for the dark of night to pass quickly. None of us can bear the weight which Christ bore. We still are not promised flowery ease upon this earth. 2 Timothy 3 Verse 12 promises us that indeed all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We live in a time of waiting. Waiting to be with our Savior. Waiting for the final destruction of evil. Relishing the foretastes to get that life. Even this morning, even a representation of that. Enjoying those foretastes, but a longing and a looking forward to when faith will be sight. Enjoying the fellowship we have with the Lord now and the joy which he allows us to have. Likewise, Habakkuk says these beautiful words in verse 17. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit be on the vine. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. These are some of the most beautiful yet challenging verses in all of Scripture. He mentions the most important and choicest products of the land, the fig, the grape, the olive, and the the necessities, the staples of life, of, of, of bread, milk, and meat. And it's all stripped away. The pleasures of life and the most basic things of life, they're all gone. What is enough? What is sufficient? The entire present world may pass away, but God's grace to his people shall endure. Our faith cannot be based on the presence of grapes. It cannot be based on the, on the health and the presence of the herd. It cannot be based on the happiness of my life nor on the amount of zeros in my bank account. It cannot be based on the happiness or success of my children. It cannot be based on the number of friends I have, nor on having a spouse or a girl or boyfriend. If our faith 
and God's goodness is based on any of these things, then it will flounder and fail. It must be centered and ordered upon the one who parted the Red Sea. The one who delivered Israel from the Canaanites. Who loved his people enough to bring them from discipline to a for, from a foreign land. And who sent his only son to die the death that we deserve. The one who rose from the grave. And who has shown himself faithful over and over again in our own lives. That is where our faith is grounded. That is where it is rooted. That is the only place where we can respond in the midst of the obstacles and the trials that we are enduring. And to, in confidence, say the words which are not just Habakkuk's words, but our words. Your words. 2,500 years later, your words. Our words as God's people. Because it's rooted in not our circumstances, but because of who our God is. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the grace of giving us words to say when we don't have any. God, thank you for the truth of who you are found in your word. And that you display that over and over again in our own lives, in our own experiences. But I pray that you would cause our faith to be rooted where it needs to be rooted in you and not the things that are going on around us. But Lord, we pray that your Holy Spirit would do that work. We pray these things in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.